that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. Hey everybody, I am Aubrey de Grey. I am the Chief Science Officer of Sensor Research Foundation, which is a biomedical research charity based in Silicon Valley. And our work is focused on bringing aging under control. Specifically, we want to extend, perhaps indefinitely, the time that people can stay youthful rather than going downhill at a particular age as they tend to do these days. And the way that we are going about it is by developing a variety of technologies that are focused on damage repair in the body. The body ages very much like a car ages. It does itself damage as a consequence of its normal operation. And this damage is initially harmless because the body, like a car, is set up to tolerate a certain amount of it. But eventually, when there's too much damage, we start to exhibit decline in function. So our goal is to do preventative maintenance on the body in a wide variety of different ways, addressing each different type of damage. That sounds like a big deal, and it is, otherwise we wouldn't need to exist. But we believe that we're getting it close to being able to achieve it. So that's what mm -hmm. we do. Great. So the podcast is called I'm Immortal. So of course, we have to ask you, I know you've mentioned before that your work is more for immorbidity rather than immortality. Regardless, what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? So you're absolutely right, of course. The word immortality is extremely loaded, and I have distanced myself very aggressively from that word for since the beginning of my time in the public eye, because ultimately it has connotations of religion, and in particular, it you know it has legitimate connotations of religion. It's it's taken. Its meaning is established, and everybody knows that. True immortality is technologically impossible. Right. That there will always be a non-zero risk of death in the coming year or whatever. It doesn't matter even if we got uploaded, you know, the computer can be fried by a supernova, things like that. Yeah. Um, so the fact is, I really need to avoid that word. And I need to do it quite aggressively because people use it as a kind of trick, as a kind of crutch with which to maintain a kind of emotional distance from the whole question of bringing aging under medical control, which is, of course, itself a perfectly realistic scenario. They kind of use it to kind of help themselves keep pretending that what we're talking about here is really just science fiction and therefore only entertainment, and we don't really need to care about it very much. And if you ask why would they want to do that, of course, that's also an easy question to answer. The answer is because they're terrified of getting their hopes up and being emotionally invested in the um, prospect of actually benefiting personally from these advances that haven't happened yet. And they know they can't do that because they don't know how soon the advances are going to happen. I don't know how soon they're going to happen. So yeah, so it's all psychologically perfectly easy to explain. But still, where it leaves me is that I have to really distance myself from the word immortality. Now, before I go on, before I let you go on, I want to say one word about the word longevity, which is a very different situation. Here, we have really made an enormous amount of progress over just the past few years, I would say. You will find all over the internet, all over the public conversation, the use of the word longevity to describe what we do. 
to actually, you know, that we want to extend longevity. Now, 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, that was 180 degrees different. Everyone who was trying to, you know, to be influential in this field was kind of apologizing for longevity. They were saying, okay, what we want is health. You know, we want healthy longevity for as long as possible. And they all accepted implicitly that longevity is a side effect of health. Though, in fact, I think I was the first person to come along and really aggressively say, listen, this is the word we should be using, side effect. Um, but the point is, there was this implicit, uh, um, you know, acquiescence in the idea that it was a drawback. It was a bad side effect. Um, you know, and now we've got to the point where people aren't doing that anymore. And they're recognizing and celebrating the fact that it's actually a good side effect. Okay, wow. Thank you for answering. Actually, I, we had some other questions, but jumping back, because 20 years ago, we didn't exist. We were actually 20 ourselves. Nowadays, I believe it's only really you who's come out and sort of really pushed the damage repair aspect of aging. And none of your colleagues have really, I guess, at least in the same field, have spoken out about it. So going back 20 years, like, how did you generate the momentum to really start all of this off? So, so you are, um, you are right and wrong there. So yes, I was certainly the first person to come along and promote the idea of damage repair within the field as being a way to go. And there were a number of reasons why my um, presentation of this took a long time to gain traction. One way was that, you know, I just wasn't very good at that. You know, it's very difficult to get a very new idea across within a scientific field. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish I could have done it better from the, from the, from the, out of the gate, but it's the way things are. Second reason, however, was a bit more profound, namely that it just sounded implausible that damage repair, which meant reversal of aging, would be actually easier than slowing aging down by making the body, if you like, run more cleanly and generate damage more slowly in the first place. So that was a very counterintuitive um, abstract concept that I had to work very hard to justify. Um, of course, there was also the political side that by virtue of the fact that the rejuvenation paradigm leads very quickly to the concept of longevity escape velocity, I was making very politically incendiary uh, predictions about how long people who are already alive today would actually live. And that didn't go down at all well either. But yeah, you can see that there was there was a lot that I had to kind of um, push back on and educate my colleagues on in relation to getting this going. However, where you're wrong is with regard to how things are today. So, you know, it took a lot of work. And for a couple of years, back 15 years or so ago, it was quite acrimonious, actually. But by the late 2000s, um, really, this was, this was over. Pretty, people pretty much knew that I wasn't talking gibberish at all, that actually I was making a lot of sense. There was still a case of a bit of, you know, dust having to settle because of the acrimony that had preceded that period. But the real end of this whole episode happened in 2013, when the um, publication happened of a paper in Cell, a very prominent biological journal, of course, called The Hallmarks of Aging. Now, that paper is absolutely a root and branch restatement of what I had said more than a decade earlier. And it, its time was right. It was ahead of my time. You know, everyone's got to be, right? Everyone wants to make a difference is ahead of their time. But the field was ready. So this paper was embraced with almost indecent fervor and has become literally, you know, tantamount to holy scripture in the field. It's by far the most um, 
highly cited paper in the whole of the biology of aging in the past decade. And so I never need to justify the damage repair paradigm to my colleagues anymore. I should actually, before I finish, I should emphasize one other aspect of why it was difficult, why there was resistance in the field. And that was because of a poor, poor level of consensus on the definition of aging. Gerontologists tend to view aging as the thing that matters. Of course they do, it's what they work on, right? But then they, what they do is they view the, um, the health problems of late life as kind of consequences of aging. I think that's an oversimplification too far. I think that it's important to view aging as being the combination of the two processes, the lifelong process of accumulating damage and the late life process of pathologies. And the reason that's important is because it helps us to distinguish between, on the one hand, the damage repair approach that I've been promoting, and on the other hand, what I often call the geriatrics approach, which is essentially addressing the individual health problems of late life individually, just like individual diseases. The reason that was so important, you know, within the field of gerontology, when I was presenting this idea for the first time, is because the whole field of gerontology more than a century ago essentially emerged because of a rejection of the geriatrics paradigm and understanding that, you know, one disease at a time is just never going to work. It's a whack-a-mole thing, right? And at first, people couldn't see the difference. People thought, well, I'm proposing a divide and conquer approach as well, right? And they couldn't see the difference. So that took a lot of explaining. Okay, wow. Yeah, that was a great explanation on that. Oh, I have a question because it relates to this which is because you've worked in this field longer than we've been alive, as I said before, I believe you said you're interested in AI and work and that, you know, you spent the last over two decades working in this field now. So how has your idea of, I guess, life and death in general changed since you first started? That's a nice question. Um, essentially not at all. I always knew that aging was the number one most serious severe problem for humanity. The thing I didn't know until I hit about 30 in the early 1990s was that biologists didn't think that way. I had always gone through life with this, you know, delusion that everyone in the world agreed because it was so bleeding obvious that um, aging is the number one problem for humanity. And I had discovered when I was 15 that I was a damn good programmer. So I decided to work on another problem. I, I believe that it is definitely a very bad thing that most people have to spend most of their lives doing stuff that they wouldn't do unless they were being paid for it. And therefore that, uh, you know, the more automation we have, the better. So I thought, well, my talents lie in this area. This is where I shall focus my talents and my effort. Um, but I never had any doubt that this problem pales into insignificance compared to the problem of aging. And so when I discovered, you know, as a complete bombshell for me, that um, that aging is actually was actually being completely neglected by almost all biologists. Um, then I thought, well, screw this, I've got to switch fields. And I happened very fortunately to be in a position where I could switch fields. I had engineered myself into a job that was very undermining, gave me a little spare time, which I'd, I had done in order to be able to self-fund my AI research. Um, but I just had to repurpose my spare time. And that was a relatively straightforward thing to do. Okay, so we've talked about aging in the past and the aging field in general in the past and the present. So where do you think all of this might go in, say, two decades in the future, 20 years in the future? Well, 20 years is a long time in the future. Of course. And um, in general, I tend to be rather reluctant to make predictions even that far out. I mean, people, you know, interviewers will quite often ask me to make predictions 100 or 200 oh, wow. years in the future, and then I will I'll just say myself. <laughs> uh, 
but the thing about even 20 years in the future is, of course, we're talking about a time frame where we may or may not have achieved longevity escape velocity. I currently put the 50-50 chance of having done so at um, 15 years from now. Um, so perhaps the more effective uh, essential variation on your question is to talk about what how life will be shortly after we have achieved longevity escape okay. velocity. All right. And um, actually, I'm going to change that as well, but uh, only after I have kind of slightly answered it. Um, so the reason I'm only going to slightly answer that question is because it's actually not the most interesting question. By that time, yes, we will have therapies that are able to Comp sufficiently comprehensively repair people so that we can stay one step ahead of the problem thereafter. And it will be absolutely certain that there's no way we will ever slip back below longevity escape velocity by making, you know, inadequately rapid progress, because as I'm sure you all understand the, um, the rate at which we need to make subsequent progress actually slows down. All right, so, um, so that's all very well. But we have to think about what the difference is going to be in terms of the world. Now, of course, one thing that will not have changed at all at that point, or hardly at all, is the demography. You know, we won't actually have chronologically old people you know, over 100, over 200, because, you know, they'd have to be over 180 already, right? That wouldn't, that's not likely. But what we will have is a precipitously declining number of biologically old people. Um, in fact, we might, yeah. if we get our shit together in the previous decade, have been able to anticipate this advance sufficiently well in terms of front-loading of investment that we could, you know, really launch this on, on the world fast. And we could, even in as little as five years following the achievement of longevity escape velocity, we could be there. We could be basically have eliminated age-related health problems altogether. But the more interesting question is what happens in the run-up? And I've already just alluded to it by talking about the, the decade in the run-up. So what will that decade consist of? What it's going to consist of is panic. Well, not exactly panic, but a great deal of chaos. Because people are going to have shifted to a position of expecting to be around long enough to benefit from these therapies, even though the therapies have not quite arrived yet. Right? And that is a very interesting situation to be in because it, first of all, obviously, it makes it electorally impossible to get elected unless you have a manifesto commitment to speed this up because every day saves 100,000 lives worldwide, right? Um, and also, of course, the infrastructure, I was just saying, you know, the front loading of investment in, you know, training of medical personnel and such like. Um, but on top of all that, we have to think what people's initial spending decisions will be. And I'm talking like five years from now, not even 10. And if you think about it, the things that are the biggest ticket items, except perhaps educating one's kids, um, in people's lives are related to that. You know, what kind of life insurance you want, what kind of health insurance, what kind of inheritance arrangements, that kind of stuff. And the real kicker here is that the switch from today's mentality where people, almost everyone in the world thinks they're only going to live very slightly longer than their parents did, into a mentality where people realize they're going to live more or less indefinitely, that is going to be incredibly sudden. It's going to be virtually overnight that that switch is going to happen worldwide. Why? Because the world are fundamentally sheep. And when Oprah Winfrey says something, everybody believes it. I mean, I'm talking only slightly elliptically, right? There are a small number of people who basically dominate opinions around the world. Now, 
How did Oprah Winfrey get where she is today? The answer is by having her ear to the ground, by being very good at seeing when expert, when expert opinion on a particular trend, on a particular topic, is changing and getting ahead of it and, you know, saying, saying the right things and getting it right. So, Oprah Winfrey is listening to me, but she's also listening to the other dozen thought leaders in the biology of aging. And she is not interested in me. She is interested in the center of gravity of the public statements of that small coterie of experts. Now, I've been out there saying the end of aging is foreseeable for the past 15, 17, 18 years, but nobody else has until now. It's just, we're just seeing the first shoots of changes in that. So I'm sure you've all heard of David Sinclair, great friend of mine, professor at Harvard, um, you know, excellent guy, very, done very important work in this space isn't scared to go out on stage and on camera and say what he thinks. Up to a point. He wrote a book 18 months ago, whose subtitle was Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. And, you know, that's pretty much equivalent to my book from 2007 that was called Ending Aging. So you may ask, why didn't he write his book in 2007? He certainly could have. But there's a very easy answer to that question. He's a professor at Harvard, which has plenty of advantages but it has the disadvantage that if you do things like that, you're going to have a very uncomfortable conversation with your dean. And you're very unlikely to get your next grant application funded because the people who are making that evaluation will say, oh, dear, this person says irresponsible things to the media. Right. So even David, who is very much not a coward, is has been and still is to some extent in a position of having to be a little bit cautious, in fact, very cautious about what he says. Yeah. But the fact that, you know, he's now starting to come out and say slightly more aggressive things. He's not the only one. George Church is doing it. You know, near Basel is doing it. We're on the cusp of a, the point where the centre of gravity will move enough for people like Oprah Winfrey to, take, to pay attention. So you are about to see the biggest sea change in public opinion on their health and their longevity that you could possibly imagine. Okay, well, I'm more than happy to be born in this generation. Hopefully, I'll be able to live much longer, much, much longer than my parents. Um, hey, screw so that. Your parents are, hey, 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 screw that. Your parents are probably younger than me, oh. right? And Oh, uh, you'd be surprised. They're about the same age as you. Right. Well, I mean, I haven't given up. Yeah, maybe, maybe not biomarker-wise. I have not given yeah. up hope for myself. So, um, so maybe I can fix your parents, too. Okay, perfect. Okay, I'd love to see them live. <laughs> you let them know, Sufa. I'll let them yeah, know. After this. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to jump ship a little bit. And uh, we've heard you mention before the seven deadly sins of aging. So could you give us a brief explanation on that and why it's commonly referred to as the hallmarks now, the hallmarks of aging? Right, yes. So <clears throat> so hallmarks was a good word to use and a very you know, clever marketing by the people who wrote the paper in 2013 because it, um, it, it spoke very powerfully to the rest of the the wider biomedical community, not just the community who study aging. And the reason it did so was because it echoed a paper that came out a number of years prior um, about cancer, called the Hallmarks of Cancer, which again was very seminal, very influential paper. Um, I didn't think of that, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I mean, basically the thing I really want to focus on here is not the differences between what I wrote in 2000 or 2002 and what they wrote a decade later, because what I really want to focus on is the similarities. The fundamental paradigm, the fundamental concept that was being communicated by both, uh, both myself and this later paper was the same thing. The idea that we want to repair damage, not just slow it down. And the idea that, it, that, that having made that decision, we have 
to treat it as a divide and conquer strategy, something where we need to have a bunch of different therapies for addressing different types of damage that are all applied to the same people at the same time. That's the really the, thing, the key thing that matters. Now, if you look at the very the, the individual specifics, you can definitely find differences. In fact, even though they've got nine and I only had seven, actually, you, you would be wrong in inferring that they identified things that I had overlooked. It was actually the other way around. It was just a different way of doing the um, partitioning. Um, I still prefer mine, surprise. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the fundamental concept is the same. And many of the things are identical, like senescent cell removal, for example. A lot of the others are as good as identical. Okay, perfect. Okay, do you mind describing the seven deadly sins for our listeners out there? Oh, sure. So, yeah, okay. So, obviously, I will describe, yeah, I'll describe my seven, not the whole box. Yeah, your so, seven, right. of course. <clears throat> your seven, yes. Yeah. And um, first of all, let me just say one generic, one more generic thing, which is my seven have been defined because of what they translate into in terms of repair modalities, the strategies that can be used to repair. So, the the, 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 the the motivation for having a set of types of damage be grouped together within a single category is if the ways to repair them are more or less the same. And similarly, for not doing so. So, for example, two of my categories are with regard to waste products that accumulate in the body. And uh, they map onto only one of the hallmarks. The reason I call, I use two is because the division I make is between waste products inside the cell and waste products outside. And uh, the two ways that I have been recommending ever since 20 years ago for how to repair those things are very different for the two cases. Essentially, in the um, case of extracellular aggregates, you can use the immune system, you can vaccinate against it, and that really works already, at least in some cases. And in the case of stuff inside the cell, you need to introduce foreign enzymes. I'm interested in bacterial enzymes that are particularly good at doing things that we do not have the genetic capacity to do. So those are two of my categories. Then the other thing that happens inside the cell that I think we absolutely need to address, and again, this was also a hallmark, is mitochondrial mutations. Um, so this is, of course, the mitochondrion is this place where the chemistry of breathing happens, where cells combine nutrients with oxygen in order to extract energy from the nutrients that can be used for everything else the cell does. And um, mitochondria have their own DNA. They're the only part of the cell that does outside of the nucleus. It turns out that's a spectacularly bad place for DNA to be because the process of extracting energy from nutrients actually creates toxins, free radicals, and they damage DNA. Um, so, uh, We've been trying to fix that by essentially putting backup copies of the mitochondrial DNA in the nucleus. We are pretty close to getting that working, far closer than anyone else ever believed was possible, so that's nice. Um, then there's another type of damage outside the cell. I already mentioned waste products, but another thing that happens is stiffening, loss of elasticity. So um, here, um, what matters here is the lattice of proteins called the extracellular matrix. This is a bunch of proteins that are secreted by cells and then they are deliberately linked together in a very regular array. And that regularity gives elasticity to the relevant tissue. So, for example, the artery wall needs to be elastic, major arteries, because it needs to buffer the heartbeat and, uh, you know, it's basically energy saving. So when, it, when, that, when the arteries become stiffer, the heart has to pump harder because energy gets lost in the process. And um, result is we get that that's a big contributor to hypertension in, in late life, which of course has many knock-on effects. Um, so the way to fix that is to essentially reverse the chemistry that's gone on. The stiffening arises from largely from the 
um, chemical reaction of the amino acids in the extracellular matrix with sugar in the circulation. And that sometimes causes new covalent chemical bonds between proteins that are not supposed to be linked together. And um, yeah, so, that, so, so we want to break those bonds. Those bonds have a very distinctive chemical structure. So this is not as crazy as it sounds. And indeed, our work on that has already gone to the point of being spun out of the company, as has actually some of the work on um, eliminating uh, waste products that I mentioned earlier. Um, then the other things that we addressed, so I've dealt with two things inside the cell and two things outside the cell so far. The other things are all about the number of cells. So there are um, two ways of having bad, having an excessive number of bad cells. One of them is very obvious to everybody. It's cancer cells that divide when they're not supposed to and eventually take over and cause, cause to die. And we are addressing cancer in a number of ways, but we're particularly interested in telomere based um, approaches that essentially cause the cell to, um, to, to kill itself by virtue of the mechanism that it uses to allow itself to be able to divide indefinitely in the first place. Um, that's going quite nicely. Again, there's a company pursuing the most promising um, approach to this. Um, so, so this is again, moving close to clinical trials. Uh, and then the other one, which is also quite high profile, most of you in the audience will probably have heard about it, cells, which is a slightly, you know, poorly defined category. Um, but basically, it means cells that are not dividing, uh, but they're not doing anything else either. They're sitting there and not doing some of the things that they were built to do. And in particular, worse than that, they are secreting stuff into their neighborhood that is um, you know, bad for other cells, including actually cast by the cells. So it's important to get rid of those. And a number of companies have emerged over the past five years or so that are doing very nicely in selectively eliminating those cells. Uh, so that's two types of having too many cells. And the final seventh um, type of damage is having too few cells so of, of a good type. So this is particularly in relation to stem cells, or at least in particular to the inadequacy of stem cell replacement of cells. So, for example, Parkinson's disease is an example of this. There's this one part of the brain, the substantia nigra, where you have a particular type of neuron, a dopaminergic neuron. These neurons create dopamine. That's why they get their name. And dopamine is a really important neurotransmitter. Um, for boring chemical biological reasons, dopaminergic neurons die much more rapidly than other neurons do. And so by the time of old age, all of us have lost maybe a quarter of the ones that we had when we were 20. But that's okay, because there's that much slop in the system. So that's fine. But unfortunately, as with everything in aging, some people have a certain type of damage accumulating a bit faster than other people. Sure enough, there are some people who have lost it by old age, they've lost maybe three quarters of their dopaminergic neurons, and that means they get Parkinson's disease. So the natural way to fix this is to put stem cells into the substantia nigra that will divide and differentiate to replace those lost neurons since the body is not doing it on its own. And indeed, that is already a very um, promising treatment. It's in clinical trials. So those are the things. Okay. Wow, that's a good summary. Um, and I guess the follow on that, because it seems like the progress is going pretty well, at least as expected. And Sufal and I, we would, we would love to be able to invest in some of these, but unfortunately, we, we are university students and our income currently is very low. We don't have as much money as Sergey Young, unfortunately. But for people who are listening, because a lot of our listeners are of a younger audience, say they really want to make a difference in the field of longevity in their next, you know, spend the rest of their 20, 30 years. Um, what would be the best way to do that? 
Well, okay. The first thing I really want to emphasize is that there is absolutely no one best answer to that. Every single person has a particular circumstance that they're in, particular skills they have, that defines how they can make the most difference. So nothing that I say in terms of recommendations for how to make the most difference should be taken as a generalization. Okay? Except for one thing. One thing is this. You were pointing out how, you know, you don't have resources, you're only college students. I always like to point out that the poorer you are, the more people you know who are wealthier than you. And of course, my point here is that everybody can do advocacy. Everybody can talk to their, their friends, their family, their colleagues, and educate them on this. Because at the moment, by no means have we won the advocacy battle at all. We still have a huge way to go in that. The overwhelming majority of humanity have decided to put aging out of their minds and to regard it as not their problem, or at least not a problem that's worth thinking about. And that is slowing things down astronomically. So every little step of the way, of persuading somebody that actually this might be quite important or that it's not science fiction or whatever makes all the difference and i want to emphasize it's not just a matter of taking someone who's already pretty positive about it and getting them that little bit over the edge so that they are sufficiently positive to actually write me a check not it's not only that that's important but it's also important to do the other end of the spectrum to take people who are vehemently opposed to this and say that you know aging is a blessing in disguise and death gives me to life and all that fucking bullshit mm -hmm. and say um and get them to at least be embarrassed to think such things and not say them too too loudly because then you get people other people donating so for example i this is a fact i tell you i have multiple examples over the past decade or so of very wealthy people that i know who really want to financially support this work and who know that they would make a difference if they did but they have never done so and they haven't done so because their wives have told them not to that is the honest truth so you know it's terrifying it's terrifying but it's how it is now of course we have somewhat escaped this at sense research foundation by um being an independent charity by at least being um you know funded almost entirely by philanthropy so yes we have the problem i've just described but at least we don't have the much bigger problem of having to you know sell our souls to peer review and get funded by the government or funded by investors necessarily so we're far more free and that's a huge part of why we've achieved as much as we have i, I should probably i should probably give a, a a slightly broader answer a really important question you know what can people who are listening to this podcast actually do so of course people who are 20 you know you haven't really decided what you're going to do with your lives but you may have some impression of what you're good at and if you find that you're really good at the bench you know you can do experiments then that's a you know we're never going to have enough people like that some people are really good at doing experiments reproducibly and well and you know getting results that can be believed and some people with however hard they try they just are not those people so so you know find out how good you are at that um you know that kind of thing and of course you know doing what you're doing right now exposing people like myself to a new audience, you know, getting the word out, that again, a lot of people, young people can do that. And I spend, I, I do interviews like this every other day, but and I'm not the only one anymore, though I used to be, um, you know, there's, there's, there's more of us out there doing this. But still, we need more, more saturation. We need, we need saturation coverage of this message. Hmm. 
Yeah, I was just going to say earlier, I remember listening to another podcast and you mentioning how when you first started organizing conferences, you would reach out to people and they would say, oh, like, I don't focus on aging and they're in some other form of science. We experienced that a lot because our project's goal is to reach out to various fields and bring them into aging, ask them questions regarding it. And a lot of them responded the same way where they're like, oh, you know, I don't do aging. I don't think I'm right fit for you. And while while we just were on the topic of wealth, say we had a couple thousand dollars burning holes in our uh, undergraduate pockets. Where should we put it? I know you've said you're not a pro investor or anything, but where should we look towards? It's really hard these days. Um, I mean, of course, the thing that makes it hardest of all is, is the rise of crypto. We have an enormously strong following within the crypto and blockchain community, and that's fantastic. Um, you know, we've had a lot of donations from them over the past few years. Um, but I haven't the faintest. I mean, I'm just like I'm not a betting man. I, I am. I just haven't the faintest idea how to do that myself. So anyone who fancies their chances of making proper money in the, in the in the crypto world, you know, it's definitely something to try. Um, it's like, you know, it's the quickest way to make money if you get lucky. Of course, plenty of people can get unlucky, but the whole point, like with any investing, is the more you pay attention, the more you can do better than the average of the market. So, um, you know, Anyone, I mean, again, I'm not advising this as a general case. Obviously, don't do it unless you really have reason to think that you could be really good at it. But, you know, people can multiply their money far faster than by any other type of investment. Um, other ways to use $2,000, you know, um, well, I mean, there's an awful lot of ways. I mean, the ways I just mentioned are not nothing. You know, just um, getting yourself in front of a camera, getting, your, getting me in front of a camera, you know, all of those things you can do, you know, for not much money. Perfect. So Sufal and I were based in Canada, and as far as we know, I don't, I could be wrong. We haven't met a lot of professors who are really involved in this field. Like we have something called the Aubrey Scale, which is pretty much we go talk to a biology professor we want to work with. We ask them how much did they know Aubrey de Grey, David Wood, David Sinclair, right? And then we see their response. Sometimes it's like, oh, I've heard of them. Sometimes it's like, yeah, it's not really my type of aging though right so we want to ask like what sort of countries are really leading the charge in terms of this field and are there certain countries that aren't really involved yet but that really should be to make a huge push excellent question um well okay first of all let me say something about canada specifically because um you're quite right that canada is not exactly overflowing with pis who are you know being outspoken about this but it is overflowing with other types of uh, person within the longevity movement. I have never understood this, to be honest. Uh, but I've been saying for 15 years how remarkable it is that there are three categories of people who are ridiculously overrepresented within the longevity movement. And two of them make perfect sense. One of them is IT people, they just kind of, you know, it's just, I'm an IT person originally, right? It just seems like this way of thinking is easier to get to, to get one's head around if one's got that kind of education. And the other one is libertarians who are, you know, you know, the happiest when they're doing something that other people think is crazy, right? Oh. Um, but the third category is Canadians. I mean, what the fuck? I have no <laughs> idea. Um, um, uh, and, uh, and this has been true for a very long time, you know, um, one of the people who were really 
uh, can take can can take pride in how much they put their head above the parapet um, way before I came along. In other words, when it was even more unacceptable was Michael Rose, who is a professor in California now and has been for a long time, but he's Canadian originally. Um, the people, a number of the people who have been prominent in cryonics as well have been uh, from Canada. Uh, a number of the people who work for me, including my co-author of my book, Michael Ray, he's from Calgary originally. One of my board of directors, Kevin Parrott, is from Edmonton. Uh, there are people in uh, all the way across from British Columbia, all the way to the Newfoundland, uh, who have been, um, you know, really doing worthwhile stuff. In Toronto, uh, that was where uh, uh, that was the origin of Kristen Fortney, who is the CEO of one of the most successful uh, longevity companies right now, BioAge, again, based in Silicon Valley. Um, then um, Moses Neimer, don't know if you've heard of him, he's probably 80 now. He shot to fame for creating the first Canadian porn channel, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, he's a TV mogul and um, quite a wealthy guy. And he runs a conference every year called Idea City, which you can look up. Um, I've spoken there a number of times. He's very heavy in, heavily into all this. He um, actually created a, a Canadian counterpart of the AARP, uh, which you can look up. Um, and yeah, I could go on. You know, lots and lots and lots of such people. One of, the, one of the professors we fund right now, based in New York, is from Montreal originally. Um, so yeah, I don't get it, but that's how it is. So you, you can't really say there's a particular country to, that you should work in. But it's absolutely, you know, willingness to speak freely about the desirability of actually doing something about aging is very much a metric that it makes sense to have for you, for, for people who want to decide where to study. It used not to be. It used to be that even people like David Sinclair could not say things that might get repeated. But that's not really true anymore. People now are willing to step well outside of that box and you know acknowledge that longevity is a medical problem. I mean, sorry, aging is a medical problem. Longevity is a medical goal. And um, mm -hmm. it's okay for youngsters to think so. I know you answered this one a lot, Aubrey, but I feel like it comes up a lot when I tell people that I'm interested in aging because I usually think geriatrics, I have to, not really that, but sort of, and I have to explain it, um, but they usually come up with the arguments of, well, we shouldn't end aging because any number of arguments from overpopulation, there's a dictator who is going to live for a thousand years, or uh, pollution, stuff like that. Could you just very briefly sort of summarize why these arguments are, like, whether they're good, bad, or what your opinion is on them? So you asked me to give a brief answer. Oh, no. But let me... But, but let me explain, first of all, why I could give a long answer, uh, which is, of course, that each of these individual um, reservations and concerns is a priori not completely stupid. I mean, some of them are. Death gives meaning to life. That's just stupid, right? But, you know, where will we put all the people or won't detest them forever or, you know, how will we pay the pensions? These are not stupid. These are things that legitimately occur to people. And therefore, it, do, it is important to come up with really good answers to them. They are definitely misplaced concerns, but you have to actually know what to say. So, for example, one thing that pisses me off royally is that a lot of the people in the longevity movement, when people say, oh dear, where will we put all the people? They'll say, don't worry, we'll all go into space. We'll mass emigrate. Um, now, you know, First of all, that's mathematically idiotic because, you know, how much space can you get to in X amount of time? Exponential functions overtake polynomial functions. You probably know that, right? Um, 
But it's much worse than that. The real problem is hardly anybody wants to go into space. Duh. And therefore, if you say that's the thing that we're going to do to solve the problem, then not only will they say, well, I don't like that solution, but they'll also completely disregard everything else that you say thereafter that might be sensible because they'll think this guy doesn't understand real people. Right. So never say that. Um, the, the real answer, of course, is that overpopulation is not a problem of enough space. It's a problem of pollution and we're fixing that already with renewable energy and so on and so forth. Um, but anyway, to come to the brief answer that I said I was going to give, um, the key point is to bring all of these concerns together and embarrass the person you're speaking to into having a sense of proportion. You have to ask them not, are these potentially concerns? You also have to ask them not, um, if they are concerns, can we address them? Can we avert them? What you have to ask them is, even in this arbitrarily implausible worst case scenario where we can't stop this, and where, for example, we actually end up in the future having to make the choice between having fewer kids than we would like or letting people get Alzheimer's disease, which are we actually going to choose, for God's sake? You know, the problem of health, the problem of aging today is not just an economic problem. Though it is an astronomical economic problem. It is unequivocally the source of by far the largest amount of suffering in the world. And just because we have become fairly good at putting it out of our minds using all manner of you know psychological tricks, doesn't stop that from being the case. So we actually have to say to ourselves, if we had the choice, if hypothetically we did have the technology to just not get biologically old, would we use it? Uh, or would we prefer, you know, even if we had these other problems that resulted as a consequence? And nobody ever succeeds in coming up with an argument that says that the overpopulation problem or the dictator's problem, whatever, could actually be worse than the problem we have today when addressed objectively. So that's the thing that I feel should be focused on by everybody who wants to get people at least to be less opposed to this crusade. So after talking for over 40 minutes, is there one thing for all of our listeners to take away from today? What exactly should they take away from this conversation? I would say that the fundamental thing to take away is that there is no biological meaningful difference between the things that we call age-related diseases and the things that we call aging itself. That terminological distinction is only terminological. It's purely semantic and it's massively damaging because it is a gateway drug to allowing people to, number one, try to address the so-called diseases of aging with, by methods that are never going to work, as if they were infections, so I was explaining the geriatrics approach earlier. And number two, it allows them to trick belief that the things they classify under aging itself are so different from diseases that they are kind of off limits to medicine and we shouldn't even be trying to fix them because aging is natural and inevitable and universal and all that kind of nonsense. So, um, yeah, if people can take away the fact that it's all aging, it's just you know, some parts of aging we've chosen to give disease-like names to and some we haven't. It's all aging. It's all a consequence of the accumulation of damage throughout life. And if we fix the damage, we fix both of these completely indistinguishable components of aging. And that will result in indefinite health, enormous alleviation of suffering, also enormous increase in prosperity. 
where can people learn more about your work, support it, or even get involved with uh, aging in general? Sure, yeah. So, of course, I recommend our website, sense.org, S for September, E for Elephant, N for November, S for September. It doesn't have any at the end. Um, and it is the place to go, whoever you are. We have material there for experts and also for everyone through to complete novices. We have obviously lots of news about what we're doing, where I'm speaking, things like that, and also what other people are doing. You know, we have a very good newsletter that you can sign up for. And of course, there's a nice big friendly donate button. And even if you're a student with no money, your father or your grandfather may think differently. For all you guys listening, the links to what Aubrey just said will be below. Once again, thank you, Aubrey, for coming on. We appreciate it. Uh, this is you guys listening to I'm Immortal, which is your source for all things immortal. And I guess, yeah, that's that's it for today, Aubrey. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.